Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome in to our Mega NBA Preview Edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham. Ethan Skonick will be along the way as we go on. We have lined up a cadre of guests to run through the five most interesting teams in the NBA heading into the season, and of course, a full preview of the Miami Heat at the end of this episode with Nikias Duncan. So here is who you're going to hear from. You're going to hear from Jackie McMullen of ESPN on the Boston Celtics. You're going to hear from Bruce Arthur of the Star in Canada on the Toronto Raptors. I find them relentlessly interesting. You're going to hear from Om Young Masuk, who covers the Los Angeles Lakers. For ESPN, you're going to hear from Mark Medina, who covers the Golden State Warriors for Bay Area News Group, and you're going to hear from Stefano Fusaro, who covers the Houston Rockets, among many other sports, for ESPN. So lots of great stuff to get to in this episode, the five most interesting teams in the NBA, and then we close with the Miami Heat. If you want to kind of zoom around, maybe find the teams that you're interested in, there will be time codes in the description so you can kind of figure out where you want to go. So we thank you for listening, but we're going to start with the legend. Jackie McMullen has amazing pieces up on ESPN.com ahead of the NBA season, and and it's part of a great project that you should check out if you're interested in this podcast, which is called Basketball, A Love Story, that she worked on with Dan Clores and Rafe Bartholomew. That is a television book and online component putting together some of the greatest vignettes and stories about the world of basketball. So check out that book. If you're interested in this podcast, we'll tell you more about it and the TV show as well with Jack and McMullen talking some Boston Celtics right now. The Celtics have five players in their starting lineup who could be as third team all NBA or better this year. If they, if they develop, how do you think the pieces will fit with Kyrie and Gordon Hayward coming back? Yeah, so obviously that's sort of the question up here in Boston is, are there enough minutes to go around? And, um, you know, it really goes beyond that starting five, Ethan, because you have a guy, Terry Rozier, who played a huge role in their postseason run to the conference finals last year, whose minutes are going to be cut. I mean, there's just no way around it. He's not going to play ahead of Kyrie Irving. You've got the same issue with Marcus Smart, Marcus Morris. I mean, I could list a whole bunch of guys. So, Brad isn't worried about it. Brad Stevens, I've asked him about this a lot, just like everybody else has. I think the, the pecking order is interesting. So it's Kyrie Irving's team. I don't think anybody would argue with that. And yet, you know, the player with the most upside might be Jason Tatum. And I think he's going to be a top 10 player before he's done. I really think he's special. And then you have a guy, Jalen Brown, who's really chomping at the bit to be something special. So of the starting five, the one I worry about the most would probably be Jalen Brown. You know, Al Horford is happy 
to do what he does, all those little things that will make all of them a lot better. And you know what? If you ask him occasionally to ISO Joel Embiid and take him to the hole like he did in the postseason that spring, he'll do that too. So you you don't have to worry about Al. I think Gordon Hayward, because it's his first year with this team now after the injury, I think he's going to ease himself in. I don't think he doesn't strike me as a guy that's going to demand shots either. So it really comes down to the young guys and how can they handle their own growing trajectory. And I think Tatum, I think I'll predict right now that Tatum will lead the team in minutes. So then it, you're, you're really talking about Jalen Brown and can he handle the fact that, yes, he's super important and they love his growth and they, he's just a, like an incredible defensive player that's only going to get better. But there are going to be times when he's going to have to wait his turn, and that's going to be difficult for him and for Tatum. Do you think, obviously, given the fact that people give so much credit to Brad Stevens and his ability to galvanize this Celtics team, that that's kind of his biggest job this year, and do you think he's up to it? I do think he's up to it because just, I just think he's very honest with them. It's pretty plain to everyone. I mean, Marcus Morris said right away, well, my role's going to change. I know it is. You know, I'm not going to play as much, and I guess I'm going to have to get used to it. And so I don't think there's any shell game going on here. I think Brad's pretty honest. And the truth of the matter is this. If you don't defend – He'll sit you down, and he's done this with every player, including Kyrie Irving. So, you know, what I wonder is, does Brad have enough guts? Let's say you got a four-point lead with two minutes to go. Do you have enough guts to sit Kyrie down and play, go with either Rozier or Smart, who are better defenders? Wouldn't that be something? I don't know. We'll see. His situation with his contract, too, like, I mean, how does that weigh into it? Because I, I think, like, a lot of us were surprised at the recent, you know, reporting that, you know, Kyrie wants to stay because there had been so much buzz about New York and that he wants to get there and his father and he could be king of New York City. Not yeah. that being king of Boston is a bad thing, but obviously there's been this New York pull on him for a long time. And I, look, I covered Kyrie for one year in Cleveland, LeBron's first year back there, and he's different, like, in a lot of ways from a lot of NBA superstars. Yeah. I feel like but you know what? I never believed. I never believed that New York talk. Never believed it. It just didn't make. It didn't make any sense to me. And I, you know, I did a pretty long, in-depth piece with Kyrie Irving. I dare say one of the oh, few, because he doesn't trust many of us, mm-hmm. as you know. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time listening to what he was saying. And you know, his search, if you will, and and you know. It's not as simple to just say he wanted to get out from under LeBron's shadow in Cleveland. It wasn't that simple. That was certainly a major part of it. But it was also this idea of a sense of belonging. And you know from covering that team, even if it was for just the one year, that there wasn't a sense of belonging for him on that, on that Cavs team. And I think that was partly because it was, such, it was, it was a team whose personality was so dominated by LeBron and his boys, Tristan Thompson, J.R. You know, he surrounded himself with people that made him comfortable. And so Kyrie comes to Boston and it's his team, and these guys are looking up to him. I mean, Terry Rozier idolized Kyrie Irving growing up, and so this team is being built around his personality and the fun that he was having with these guys. And, you know, I talked to him a lot about it with Jeff Wexler a lot. I just never bought into the New York thing. It doesn't make sense. He wants to win, and he wants to be the man. And as you know, you, you have a better chance of being All-NBA or an MVP, and I do mm-hmm. think those things matter to Kyrie Irving. You know, he hasn't been All-NBA since LeBron went to Cleveland, right? It hasn't happened since then. So I think those things matter to him, and I don't think that's so bad because I think winning matters to him too. He hit the biggest shot in Cleveland history, not, not LeBron. And so having said all of that, Boston is the perfect place for him to have all his dreams come true, including an environment where he feels wanted and important and happy. And I've never seen him this happy because he's also healthy for the first time in three years. 
Yeah, that was going to be my next question here because that's always the issue uh, with Kyrie. And I remember that first year right. in Cleveland, that was mm-hmm. the issue too in the playoffs because there were players, you mentioned him being a little disconnected. I mean, there were a lot of players on that Cavs team. It started with LeBron, but it wasn't just LeBron who believed that Kyrie was kind of dogging that injury during the playoffs. And then the first right. game of the finals, it crops up and he can't. then he just can't play after that. So what kind of precautions does Boston, is there anything that they can do to keep him healthy? Because I, I feel like this has been a year after year thing with him where it's always seems to be something. Right. Well, I think you go back to the, the original injury was a fractured kneecap and they had to put a ton of hardware in there to keep that thing in place. And uh, I have, you know, I don't know if you have, if you have any hardware I do, I have a screw in my foot and um, the only time it bothers me is when I'm skiing, all of a sudden I'll be skiing. I feel like I have a nail on my foot. It's very disconcerting, but it doesn't bother me. With Kyrie Irving, it was, it was irritating him. The tension wire was a problem. They took that out, and then they discovered there was some infection. So all those surgeries were related to the hard wire that needed to be in his body for the fractured kneecap. So if you buy into the fact that the kneecap is fully healed, which by all accounts it is, and now they've taken out all that hardware, going forward – there should be no issues. But you know this. There are never any guarantees about the health of a player who's had multiple surgeries. We're seeing that right now with Russell Westbrook. So that is the single biggest question mark for me and what happens with the Boston Celtics. Now, they're going to rest him this year. I asked Brad last year. You know, he, he was never one of these coaches that sat players in for rest, which, of course, every other team does. And he said, I said, why don't you do that? And he said, well, I'm not sure we're like quite good enough yet to even, you know, warrant that. And plus, they were let's play, let's face it, they were down bodies almost immediately because they lost Gordon Hayward on opening night. So I think you'll see Kyrie rest. I don't know how many back-to-backs he'll play early on in the season. We've already seen it in preseason. He already sat out a preseason game, so they're going to be very, very careful with him. Now you say that Kyrie Irving hits the biggest shot in Cleveland history, and that is no question true, but. I think he's going to be asked to be the A1 on this team throughout a postseason run. And Mm -hmm. he's never really done that before to the tune of a title. Obviously playing with, like, when I get into arguments with people about Kyrie Irving's ability, it's, well, he played with LeBron. And I think anyone who can deliver at that level in the NBA Finals is deserving of being an A1 player. But do you think that that extra level of not just being asked to be good in a playoff series and having to deliver every night is something that Kyrie is up to. Oh, I think it's something he's been waiting for his whole career. Uh, So I don't worry about whether he's up to it. Now, whether he can do it is a whole other thing, Right. right? And, you know, some guys aren't up to it. Obviously, DeMar DeRozan, as constituted, is not up for it, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe he will be in San Antonio. You know, maybe they'll find the right formula, um, the right mental health person to get him his mind in, in the right frame of mind to be a guy that wants to take that big shot at the end of games. Some guys never get there. I don't see Kyrie as being one of them. And I also think that he's smart enough to understand that when he's doubled, that leaves somebody open, whether it's Hayward or Tatum or Horford, who is just – you know, people forget about him because he's just not a super aggressive offensive player. He doesn't care about that kind of thing. But good luck leaving him alone. And I think Kyrie's smart enough basketball, you know, smart enough basketball player to understand that. I really think he's going to have a great year. I think he's going to be in the MVP conversation. Well, Jackie, now that they're in a position like this where they've got five legitimate 
uh, you know, players in their starting lineup where they've mm-hmm. been, they're young. And as you mentioned, they, they re-signed smart. Um, they have Rozier. They've got Marcus Morris and they've got what looks like, again, the deepest team in the league. I mean, we've, we talked to Bobby Marks yesterday mm-hmm. and he said they're the deepest team in the league. One through 10 is Danny right. Ainge no done. Question. Is Danny Ainge done in your opinion? I mean, has it does. Oh, he no, have, no, no. Okay. So oh, where no. does he go? He's, from not, he's never done. Yeah. He's never done because you still, the one thing you would love is instead of piecemealing an interior defender, you know, that one sort of lockdown big man, because you're going you're gonna to run into Joel Embiid a lot, right? So you can ask Horford to play the five, but that's not a great idea because he's getting older and you, you wear him down. You've got Baines, so Baines can body him. You've got Tice, there's another five fouls to come off the bench and body a guy like Embiid. And if Robert Williams pans out, and I don't know if he will, you know, the early returns aren't particularly great in my opinion. He, you know, he's off to a pretty rugged start in terms of commitment and uh, responsibility, which is those are the, the talent isn't the question. Those are the questions. But, you know, you've got Sacramento's unprotected pick next year, and, and I don't know if you can pay Rozier. How do you keep Rozier and pay him? I don't know that you do. So maybe you package that for some kind of, you know, maybe, and maybe one of those other bigs for, for like a, just one guy that can really lock it down for you in the middle. I, I just never – I know Danny. He's never done. Ever, ever, ever. <laughs> Last one here, and then we want to get to your book, Basketball, Love Story. Talk a little bit about that. But obviously, covering the league as long as you have and and knowing uh, Pat Riley, I'm curious what you Mm. think of the Heat situation now because we've been uh, confused by it a little bit because, uh, as as you know, Pat always swings for the fences and the Heat are kind of stuck in this sort of slightly above average area. We don't know what's Mm going to happen with Jimmy Butler as we tape this, but um, uh, just your your sort of perception of it because obviously Danny and Pat have a long history. I mean, shut the bleep up and manage your own team. Don't they? (laughs) So I'm just curious. I still can't believe that happened. Can you? That is like one of the most amazing NBA moments Jackie, I was, I'll, I'll always remember it because because uh, I was there I just I've told this story before but it was right after the the Heat's 27 game winning streak had ended in Chicago we were in New Orleans and Danny had chirped a little bit about LeBron complaining about fouls and uh, hard fouls from Kirk Heinrich and LeBron had made a comment about it to us in the shoot around where he was kind of taking some shots at Danny and we were waiting outside the locker room in New Orleans and Tim Donovan the uh, media relations chief for the heat comes out and goes, we have a statement from Pat, write this down, tweet it. And we're like, what is it? There's four of us standing there. And he's like, uh, okay, this is from Pat Riley to Danny Ainge. Uh, shut the, you know, I'm just say it, say it. Come on. It's a podcast. Yes. Chris. All right. Shut the f- up and manage your own team. And I was, and we're and, right. and, and I looked at Donovan and we're like, wait, that's for real. That's on yeah. the, that's real. That's on the record. And he said, he said, write it. And and I was so flustered that I actually tweeted initially shut the you know the f- up and coach your own Leap up. right and I was like okay oh. but, but we walked in the locker room that night Jackie and LeBron uh, right after this happened LeBron is lying in the middle of the floor and Mike Mancius is working on him in the middle of the floor mm-hmm. and LeBron is scrolling Twitter and smiling. And at that moment, we thought Pat Riley just kept LeBron James forever. And, of course, that was not the case because two years later he was gone. Right, right. But, uh, but it was one of those great moments that we were like, did this really happen? But really, I mean, you're talking about two titans of the league, um, you know, in their respective positions. And, and it could only mean as much with two people like that. And right now, Danny's gotten the better of Pat, at least right now, uh, in terms of restocking right. for the future. Well, you know, it's funny. First- if you go back and look at the heat, you can <laughs> – if you really want to – you can blame LeBron for a lot of this. 
So you know this, Ethan. Remember, the, you know, it, it happens, right? They get the heatles. They're all coming, and they all agree before they can actually agree, right? Because it has to be – you have to wait for it to be all, you know, signed on the dotted line. Those guys agreed to four years, and then they came back and demanded the fifth year. And by doing so, as you recall, they had to trade away all those draft picks. It, it changed the course of this franchise. There's no, no question it did for the future. And I always look back on that and say, I mean, hey, I get why LeBron and Chris Bosh and those guys did what they did. You always want to get what you can get. But they absolutely hamstrung this organization for the next several years. And I think that's a lot of what you have seen here. The thing, you know, and I have such respect for Pat Riley. I just think he's one of the greatest. And, and sometimes I feel like he gets lost in the shuffle, which I don't understand, you know, because he's, he was just so, he's just been so great both as a coach and as a GM. Um, but the one I was surprised at, and I guess he had no choice, was I was never a fan of Whiteside, still not. And uh, I guess they had to max him because, you know, what else were they going to do? But I just look at that as a problem for them. I just don't think he's the guy you want to build your franchise around. Am I wrong? Uh, I don't think they would say you're wrong at this point. So, so I think <laughs> yeah, I would I say I would so say I would say fans happened, are on thinking, your side too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I just he's not the guy, and and you know we we were we we're smiling a little bit here in Boston because they were trying to pedal Whiteside off on on one Danny Ainge who obviously didn't bite. So that was one of the ones that made me scratch my head a little bit. But I wouldn't pass, put it past Pat Riley to somehow get Jimmy Butler. I just wouldn't put it past him. He's another guy. He's like Danny. You never, you never count that dude out. He told me two years ago he's going to retire. I'm like, yeah, right. okay, Pat. Yeah, I'm going to retire too, man. Let's do it together. You know, neither one of us are retiring. We're both full of crap. Hold on, Jackie. Uh, you, you said that the you said that the Heat tried to pass Whiteside off on Boston. Yeah, they they were talking in Boston about trying to trade him. That was a while ago. Okay. that was years ago. That wasn't recently. Yeah, that was some time ago. I got, I got. So let's get to the book, Jackie. Basketball, a love story. Um, again, no one's covered the league quite like you over the years. Tell tell our listeners what it's about and where they can get it. It's a pretty cool project. So it actually um, started with Dan Cloris, who's a filmmaker, and you know the film's running on ESPN um, every Tuesday now for like eternity. I think it's going to be like <laughs> 200 hours. And Dan's a brilliant guy and had this great idea and, and got great connections within the NBA to interview all these amazing players. You know, Bill Russell for four hours, Oscar Robertson for five hours, LeBron, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, you know, current players, but also like Annie Myers and Nancy Lieberman and, and John Calipari and Mike Krzyzewski and, you know, just every big name you can think of in the men and women's game and the international game. Sabonis is in there. Manu Ginobili, Luis, Luis Scola, every, you know, all these guys. Yao Ming. And so his idea was to do these 60 little vignettes, these, you know, stories that all had to do with the love of basketball. And so he hired me to do some of the interviews. So I did some of them. And then, uh, you know, we got talking about the game and, you know, he didn't quite, I think he would admit this, know the women's game as well as maybe I did. So the next thing you know, I'm in the film. And then I said to him one day, man, what, you just have all this great material. What a shame. So much of it's going to end up on the cutting room floor. And he's, called me a week later and said, you know, let's, you should be doing a book with this stuff. And, uh, and I said, oh, it's too much. And he said, well, I'm going to, you know, let some, you, you have someone else work with you, Rafe Bartholomew, who I didn't know that well, but certainly had a great regard for, um, for those of you who remember the now you know, de departed Grantland, Rafe was part of that crew. And he's a really talented young guy. And so we did it together. And we poured through all these amazing interviews and put it into an oral history, which was a format I'm not, I had not been used to. I hadn't really done much in the work, work of oral history. It's pretty difficult 
but it's also pretty cool when it all put, you know, it's like a puzzle. And when you get the last pieces put together, it, it's really a fun way to go about it. So there's, you know, great stuff about the gambling scandals, about Connie Hawkins, about LeBron and the decision, one of my favorite, you know, parts of the book. Because um, we've got David Stern saying, take your talents to South Beach. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, we wanted David Stern to say that when it happened, right? <laughs> and at least now he finally is. Um, and there's some great insight. You know, Ahmad Rashad is interviewed in the book, and people will say, well, why is he interviewed? Well, he's Michael Jordan's closest friend and uh, has been around Michael a lot, and I thought gave one of the great tidbits, which is both, I think it's in the film, I know it's in the book, and that was he's with, sitting there with Jordan, and someone says to Jordan one day, well, who's better, Kobe or LeBron? And Michael Jordan looks at him and says, Kevin Durant, which is pretty surprising. Wow, wow. Wow. So there's all sorts of great little nuggets in there. Um, it was a really one of the most fun and difficult projects I've been involved in. Uh, but there's a little bit in there for everybody. Um, if you love the game of basketball, you're gonna. I think you're gonna really enjoy the book. Jackie McMullen, thank you for joining us. Really a pleasure. All right, enjoyed it. Thanks. We'll carry on with our mega NBA preview in a second, but first I want to tell you about one of the great sponsors in the Five Reason Sports Network, and that is BetDSI. Be sure to use the promo code REASON101. All kinds of betting going on during this NBA season. You get over-unders. The heat's still sitting at 41.5. It's there. It is tasty. I jumped all over it at BetDSI.com. You got regular season games starting on Tuesday night with the national doubleheader, of course, in the full swing of NFL college football season you got the live betting going on you got soccer you got baseball playoffs you got everything that you can imagine to possibly bet on over at betdsi.com and again use the promo code reason 101 legitimately honored to have jackie mcmullen there now we're going to talk some toronto raptors Kawhi leonard is there now with bruce arthur of the star in canada all right, for the next part of our NBA preview series, we're going to bring in the esteemed columnist. I use this for very few columnists in our continent. <laughs> certainly do for this guy. The esteemed columnist for the star up in Toronto, Bruce Arthur, has covered all Toronto and Canadian sports for a long time. Gotten to know Bruce a little bit over the years from his great coverage of the Raptors. And obviously the Raptors this year are one of the more compelling teams in the NBA, and let's start here with you, Bruce. Before we get to sort of Kawhi and what it means and where it goes and ultimately if he stays there, do you feel that the Raptors team, as it was constituted, had run its course? I think absolutely. Like, and, and I say this as someone who's covered them pretty much every playoffs since. I, I actually skipped the last two games of the Washington Wizards sweep because I had a kid literally between games two and three. But other than that, like I've seen it all happen, right? I've seen how it's all unfolded and how they talked themselves into being, this is the year. This is, we've got a shot this time. We've got a shot this time. We added Serge Ibaka. We got a shot this time. We were a 59-win team. We got home court advantage. This is our chance. This is our chance. And every year they said this. And I mean, more importantly, for, like I, I think they ran out of, kind of rode with this team because I just don't think you could talk yourself into it again. The other thing is that the organization clearly thought that. Masai Ujiri clearly thought that. Within days of that series being over, he had essentially determined that something big was going to change and it was going to center around the big three pillars of the organization, which at the time were DeMar DeRozan, Dwayne Casey, and Kyle Lowry. And you can see how determined he was to do that. This team just wasn't going to go anywhere. The Raptors as we knew them basically died in the last 
five minutes of game one and overtime of game one against the Cleveland Cavaliers this year. As soon as they blew that game, the Raptors, as they knew themselves, were over. And no matter what happens with Kawhi Leonard, I think you defend this decision. But you don't think that the one reason why the, the, the Raptors, as they define themselves, had sort of ended is because of one man, LeBron James, who now plays in the other conference? Like, you don't think if they roll it back and LeBron James goes to the Lakers that they have a chance to win the East, do you? I, I just don't know. What that series showed is that when the moment got big, the main characters with the Raptors team never rose to it, right? And so it isn't that it was just LeBron. If they lost to LeBron in seven this time, if they did what Indiana did in the first round, if they came out and played hard and determined and like Cleveland had had one day off between their game seven against Indiana and the game one against the Raptors, the, the blueprint was there. Like before game one, Raptors officials were looking out on the court and saying, if we play like Indiana, this is going to be a really interesting series. And they just didn't. Like DeMar DeRozan didn't just lose to LeBron in the playoffs. He failed in the playoffs. Like take a look at his playoff numbers year in, year out. He's just never been able to create the quality of shots that you want from a lead guy. And Kyle Lowry actually had a really good playoff this year, but he, he did it in a way that he clearly didn't try to be the number one guy. And Dwayne Casey, I mean, I have a lot of time for Green. I think some of this stuff that got kind of heaped on Dwayne wasn't totally fair. But the same things that drove the Raptors front office nuts about Dwayne, but during his entire tenure with the Raptors, kept cropping up in the playoffs in terms of matchups, in terms of game situational stuff. So it wasn't like it was just LeBron. Because you think about what's the most notable playoff success these Raptors had outside of playing the Cleveland Cavaliers they beat a Milwaukee team that really wasn't very good and they beat them in six and it, there were moments of life and death in that series the year before that when they went to the conference final even they should have lost that Indiana series they could have lost that Miami series those are again two life and death series against mediocre teams teams that never were going anywhere then the sweep against Washington a loss in seven of the Brooklyn Nets they'd never done that much in a, ser- in a conference that was there for the taking. And at some point, were those Raptors ever going to win a title? No, they were not. The only way to get from those Raptors to a title was to swap out some of the pieces for better pieces. And they wound up there with DeMar DeRozan and trading him for Kawhi Leonard. But I think they were willing to trade DeMar DeRozan for a whole lot less than that for years before because the flaws, as much as I love DeMar as a guy, the flaws of his game are baked in and they've never really changed. So we're talking to Bruce Arthur here. So let's go through the TikTok a little bit as you know it, because when the Kawhi Leonard thing was happening, nobody was talking Toronto. When we were talking Kawhi, it was Lakers, it was Clippers. It was, okay, maybe Houston could get in the mix. Maybe Boston, if if they're willing to give up one of their two young wings, or maybe both of them. Okay, maybe Philadelphia gets in the mix for him. Nobody was talking about the Raptors. So obviously Masai you know, has made big trades before. Most of them have been ripping off the Knicks. But how did this kind of play out? How did they get in the picture here? They didn't start focusing on Kawhi. Like they made the phone calls, but they were looking for deals elsewhere. DeMar DeRozan was out in trade talks for like with other teams and nothing that looked like Kawhi was coming back. Nothing, not even close. Like you would have been lucky to get like a, and pick a name at almost random, like a Robert Covington back. You probably weren't even going to get that. So when he has a good relationship with R.C. Buford and Greg Popovich, one of the Messiah's abilities is to cultivate really good relationships with really significant people in the league. And he's been really close with the Spurs front office. 
And so I think he started looking into it and they wanted too much and the Raptors didn't want to give up too much. Um, and then they, they just kind of let it go. And if you looked around the league, what, what kind of you started to hear is that Boston was never really seriously engaged. The Lakers never went too, too far. None of the other offers that kind of came into the Spurs from around the league were that good. Like no one was really with one year left with all the uncertainty around Kawhi. With the idea that he wanted to go to L.A., it means an L.A. team isn't necessarily incentivized to give up big assets for him, and no one else around the league was willing to go hard to do it. Although I, I was told that there were other teams that he talked long-term, he, he seemed open to a long-term extension with, and I think the list, as I remember it, was the L.A. teams, Philadelphia, and the New York teams. But none of those markets were stepping up and saying, we're ready to make a big commitment here. And so when they started to circle back, like, what are you getting out of this deal? You're getting an all-star who, if you can teach him to play defense and shoot threes, becomes a, a really valuable player in DeMar DeRozan. And Jakob Pertl, Jakob Pertl, I still think, is probably the lowest grade of the young players the Raptors have. But he's a young player, and you get a faraway pick, right? Like, there was nothing better than that. There was nothing that could keep Pop around. Like, we, no one knows how long Pop's going to go. But if Pop wants to be competitive for the next two or three years, then he was at least getting an all-star player back that he could work with. So it just kind of, they went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And Masai was in Africa hanging out with Barack Obama. So he's, he was up all night making phone calls and talking to RC and talking to RC. And eventually they came down to this is that the Spurs just didn't have a better offer for competitiveness right now. And for the Raptors, again, the only thing, the thing that Masai Ujiri has been building towards, everything he's done in Toronto, everything in terms of how he's built his front office, in terms of how he's built the culture of the Raptors, the kind of hype culture of the Raptors, the marketing of the team, the cultivation of the fan base, everything has been built up to the moment where you get a chance to acquire a top five player. Because without those guys, we all know it's really hard to be a true contender. And so once Kawhi was on the radar, that's where that's where Masai was looking. That like, And it happened really fast at the end. It was probably about four days to a week where it, it really came together. And the result was Masai Ujiri standing on a sidewalk out of ho- outside a hotel in Kenya at like three or four in the morning, waiting for the time to line up so he could call DeMar DeRozan and tell him that it was over. Now that Kawhi Leonard is in the team, uh, what what has kind of been the aftermath in terms of Kawhi Leonard probably not wanting, not, not having Toronto be an ideal destination for where he wanted to go and play for his next few years? And then obviously there's been a lot of conversation about Kawhi Leonard's camp being a detractor for why teams didn't want to trade for him. What, have, what has the relationship been like since he's come into Toronto? So far, there hasn't been anything that's leaked out that's been bad. So he he didn't come here in the summer after the trade, which, you know what? LeBron didn't go to L.A. right after the trade either. And that was something that people went, you know what? Maybe Kawhi should have been here. There was talk that maybe they would do a press conference the Friday before the media day on the Monday. But Masai Ujiri was out of town, and Kawhi didn't want to do it. So they did the big media day splash on the Monday. And so one of the questions with that was, how far could you push Kawhi? How much could you get him to do in terms of media obligations? Kawhi did everything they asked. I mean, he did his his 20-minute press conference, and he was about as effusive as Kawhi Leonard gets. And then he did one-on-ones, and he he gave it an honest effort. And everything that's come out of camp so far is that he's given it an honest effort. He hasn't been – I always like to use this analogy because I'm from Vancouver. It hasn't been Steve Francis with his bottom lip kind of pouting out. (laughs) <laughs> looking up into the mountains to see if he can I see actual grizzly bears in the mountains, right? Like there's been no indication he's not happy to be here. There's been 
people in camp saying that he's Kawhi's taken up more of a vocal leadership role than maybe he did in San Antonio, that he feels comfortable. Danny Green was saying that the other day. So far, he's been good. Now, none of this really matters except that none of it's been a disaster. You know, like this is the basic prerequisite for it not going sideways in the first two or three weeks. But so far, what Kawhi said on the the first day here in Toronto seems to have kind of held up, which is he is open to the experience. He's excited to try. He's come here with an open mind. And that's all you can ask for, because this is a great city. Like I didn't grow up here. I moved here when I was, what, 27. It's a fabulous city. It's a city you can fall in love with. And if you go back to that list of the teams Kawhi Leonard was willing to maybe sign an extension with or talk extension with, there's nothing about just L.A. on that list. There's nothing about just warm weather cities. It's big market cities, big market cities with a chance to win a title, like one or the other. So Philly has a chance to win a title, reasonably big market. It's close to New York. Two New York teams, huge market. The two L.A. teams, home and huge market. So can Toronto give them that? And so far, the organization seems comfortable with him and they see he seems comfortable with them and they still haven't gotten to the real games yet and there's just so far to go a couple things on this um first i mean would you say right now he's the best player in the east if he's healthy is that is that the way that the raptors feel about him i mean the list would be him or Giannis antetokounmpo or i mean it's kind of a short list after that isn't it Probably, probably Kyrie in there. Oh, I would say Kyrie's a notch below because defensively he can't do what right. Giannis and, 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 and Kawhi right. can do. Like We don't know who Kawhi is right now, but if he's the Kawhi that he was before the injury, I mean, I think you can argue he's a top three player in the league. Mm-hmm. Like if you assume that LeBron is number one and then Durant or Curry, depending how you like, is are, are in the two, three range. And then I mean, would you rather have Kawhi Leonard or James Harden? Would you rather have Kawhi Leonard or Anthony Davis? Anthony maybe. Davis, yeah. right? Like, like he's in that category. He's in the top five or six players in the league because he's he's the most versatile, toughest wing defender in the league, and he can get you twenty five effectively and efficiently. And it'll be so, so interesting to see how he fits on this team with the concepts they're running, with the really kind of there's so much movement, there's so much creativity, there's a lot of agency for players on this team. I remember someone saying once that one of the ways that the light bulb went on for Kawhi is when someone kind of really, when he really got the idea that they weren't running the play for Kawhi to score, they were running the play for the Spurs to score, right? This Raptors team exemplifies that. They got a ton of shooters. They got a ton of guys who are open to what they're doing. If Kawhi fits into that, I mean, he'll elevate everything else. And I'm I'm actually just really excited for people in Toronto to figure out how good he is because I don't think they know because it's been a while. And watching Kawhi Leonard play, there's no one else in basketball like him. Uh, he's he's really one of the one of the singular guys in terms of how many guys can you stick on LeBron James and sleep at night? You know. Final one here uh, for Bruce Arthur. You know, I, I see the East is divided into three tiers right now, Bruce. Uh, I, I I think you have you have Toronto, you have Boston, and you have Philadelphia. Then you have a a, a tier of about six teams. I think that are trying. Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know, maybe seven if you throw Chicago in there because they did add Jabari Parker, although he looks a little bit out of shape at the moment. But th- they seem to have enough pieces when Markinen gets back. And then you've got five that are not trying at all. Like, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Cleveland's kind of pretending to try. You've got Orlando. You've got, uh, you know, you, you've got other teams in the mix there. The, the, the Nets are not at that level yet um, th- that at that stage. But if I was to say to you, of the teams in that first tier, Boston or Philadelphia, is it clearly Boston that's Toronto's top competition in the Eastern Conference? I think so. 
uh, I think pretty clearly. Just look at the overall talent level. The, the, the Raptors, if you if you want to list their strengths, they got a, a superstar, they got an all-star, and then they got a bunch of guys you can play. Boston's just got, they've got a near superstar in Kyrie Irving. They've got an all-star in Gordon Hayward. They got an all-star in waiting in Jason Tatum. And they just got a bunch of guys you can play. And they got a, a coach who makes everyone, I don't know, 10 to 15% better. Boston is is ready to be a superstar team, I think, without quite having the highest level of talent. Philadelphia, I'm still not sure. Because a lot of that run in the second half of the season was Marco Bellinelli making shots, right? And Ursan Ilyasova making shots. And they're good and could be really good. I still view them as just a little bit behind the Raptors. But they also have two guys who could be superstar players. But you're, I think you're right. There's three teams in the East. Like, this is the post-LeBron era, and this is where we figure out who gets to make the finals now that LeBron's gone. It's going to be one of those three teams. I don't think anyone else is surprising. It could be the Raptors. The Celtics, I would say, if you're going to start the season, are going to be the team that people are going to pick to make the finals. We'll carry on with our NBA preview here, but first I want to tell you about BetQL and other the terrific sponsors here in the Five Reasons Sports Network. Download the BetQL app, either in the Apple App Store or Google Play. What BetQL does is gives you the data that you need to make smart bets. You can go with your gut if you want, but listen, in the end, you're going to lose money. You need information that is going to help you bet smarter, and our friends over at BetQL can get that job done for you, telling you how lines are moving. Maybe it started at three earlier in the week. It's up to six now. You have to take that into consideration. Where is the betting public going? Where is the public going? Because maybe they're not making the smartest bets, and you can bet against the public, and they give you recommendations on where they think betting lines should be and how that differs with the Vegas gambling line for for example, on Thursday Night Football, they had the Philadelphia Eagles as 11-point favorites away to the Giants. The betting line was only three. If you took the Eagles on their recommendation, then you won some cash. So check out the BetQL app, either in the Apple App Store or in Google Play, BetQL. Thanks so much to Bruce Arthur for joining us here on the program. The next big team we are getting to is who else but LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers. Covering them in this episode is Om Young Masuk, who will be following the Lakers this year for ESPN. Thanks so much to Bruce Arthur for joining us here on the program. The next big team we are getting to is who else but LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers. Covering them in this episode is Om Young Masuk, who will be following the Lakers this year for ESPN. Ohm, you get the pleasure now of doing what I got to do for five years, which is covering the LeBron James circus. So take us through it. What has it been like so far? What was it like in camp? How do you think LeBron is adjusting to his new surroundings? I think LeBron is making an effort. And what I mean by that is even though it's a new team, and I don't know how it was when he first started Miami, but I think the first week in camp or over the first week in camp, he spoke like seven straight days in a row. And there's been a lot of interesting questions where both sides, the local media is learning him and he's learning the local media. And so kind of like it's, there's been some tense moments where there's been a lot of questions like, what do you think about the young kids? That, that has come up a lot. And I think, uh, you know, what do you think of Luke Walton? And I think LeBron is certainly cognizant of not trying to say anything too early because he's still getting to know a lot of these you know, his new teammates and Luke Walton in particular. So he's trying to be patient, I think, with the media and all the questions he's getting. And, and it's not even just the local media that's going to be covering him game in and game out. It's like a lot of like outlets that are popping in and bloggers. And, you know, I mean, like when you covered LeBron, it certainly was a circus with the Miami Heat. But now I think 
with the way social media is now and you have a ton of bloggers and everything's up on Instagram and Twitter and everything is being recorded on people's phones. I think it's probably even different than what LeBron is used to going to a new team. Does it feel big yet? Because now you're mentioning kind of this number of people from, from different outlets, but we experienced something in Miami that was this phenomenon that, you know, captivated the entirety of the league. And I feel like this move, I think it's partially because there aren't stars that accompanied him, but it feels sort of inevitable in a way, and it didn't really have that sense of anticipation and it comes with a free agent decision and all that. When you're sort of around it, does it feel massive to you? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel as massive as, as say, the big three, I think, um, in Miami, because I think you're right, there wasn't the star power, but but it feels big because it's the Lakers. It's the Lakers in Los Angeles. And when you add that in with LeBron, you just had some weird things happen even before LeBron uh, stepped foot on the practice court. Like, you know, like local artists doing up murals of LeBron kind of paying homage to like Laker greats and people trashing those murals. And, you know, like uh, because there's an element here, an element in Los Angeles where there's still a pro Kobe faction that's anti LeBron, whatever have you. So, you know, you would think LeBron would have been welcome with open arms and there's still some people out there. And I'm not saying whoever trashed those murals speaks for everyone, but there's certainly been, you know, a little bit of a pushback. Um, but it's just like every little thing LeBron does has kind of kind of been a big deal. And uh, people are kind of like watching him. And like like the first game in San Diego, they had a preseason game in San Diego and the buzz in the arena, it felt like a big regular season game, not just some preseason opener in this like dilapidated arena that, as Luke Wold told me, his dad had played in and, and the arena hadn't changed since then. So <laughs> the place was the place was packed like before he even came out, you know, people showed up early. And here's the thing that, you know, is a big deal in Los Angeles. When he played his first game in Staples Center, people were in their seats in Staples Center early for the first preseason game in Staples. You know, L.A. is a late arriving crowd. You can feel the energy from the fans and from the players, especially when they take the court. And like the other night, LeBron didn't even play. It was his first preseason game. He sat out and it was in Anaheim. And when he walked out, there was a buzz that went through the arena, just him walking out to the bench. And then when they showed him on the big screen, he got like basically a standing ovation. And all you need to know about the, like, the difference of how much things have changed in the year for the Lakers in that same building a year ago, a line had like fans had lined up from the bottom of a walkway from courtside all the way up the aisle to where fans enter into the game just to get an autograph from LeVar Ball pregame. So like, <laughs> that was like the big buzz last year in the Honda Anaheim Center. And this year, the buzz was they just showed LeBron for one second on the screen, and there was like a standing ovation. So Laker fans are super excited, and things have really, really been a massive, drastic change in Los Angeles. Let's look at them from a basketball perspective. Uh, we had Bobby Marks on our pod, and, and he said that he was okay with what they did this offseason because he, he looks at a lot of the players they brought in as placeholders. Of the guys that they brought in, all these one-year deals – Let's start with them and let's move to the young players. Are there any of the, the veteran guys that they brought in home that you think are actually a part of the future? Maybe Rondo. And I say that because Rondo has made almost an immediate impact as far as his leadership and his voice in the locker room and on the floor. I think Rondo and, 
and LeBron, or as we like to call them, LeBrondo. Those two have immediately kind of their voices are the top two voices now heard outside of Luke Walton with this team. So um, obviously there's magic, but, you know, magic does, you know, I think with LeBron and Rondo, they basically have kind of taken over even in the offseason workouts starting from that far back. So Rondo perhaps could be a guy that maybe could stick around. It really depends. I mean, look, Lance Stevenson, we got to see what he can do and how he fits in. Uh, JaVale is one other guy, I would say. JaVale has been very good in the preseason. It's so good, in fact, that I was like thinking, man, at first I thought JaVale would only play maybe 10, 15 minutes a night. Maybe that's still the case. But I think he's going to be a little more important to the Lakers than than even they thought because he has been a factor around the rim. He's rebounding and blocking shots. And then when they try to go small, the defense has really suffered for the Lakers. So um, it, I, I think maybe those two guys stick out to me as guys that could potentially stick around. Rondo and JaVale McGee are both interesting to me in different ways because I remember having a conversation with Dwayne about who he thought the two highest basketball IQ players in the league were. And he said flat out LeBron and Rondo. So in that sense, I've never thought they were a great basketball fit because LeBron likes to play with shooters, and obviously that's not Rondo, but I did think that would fit. The reason I thought JaVale would fit Ohm is because he played with a JaVale type in Miami and Chris Anderson, and that went very, very well. Like, guy doesn't need the ball, gives him vertical spacing, can play pick and roll with him, can finish. You know, not a player – I mean, obviously JaVale might dribble the wrong way. That's a bit of a concern. But, like, the rest of that stuff, like, it does fit from a basketball perspective. So I'm not not stunned on on those two. Yeah, I think the question when they put the roster together was, first of all, they didn't add any shooters. And I mean, like, shooting specialists. So there's no Kyle Corvers or J.J. Reddicks on this team. And the Lakers argued, well, we have Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Josh Hart, Kyle Kuzma, Brandon Ingram, guys who shot in the high 30s who we expect to, you know, shoot in the 40% area or better this season and take a step forward. But, you know, LeBron has historically kind of had, you know, shooting specialists around him. As I talked to one assistant coach, he was like, I look at the Lakers and I don't, they don't have enough Corvers. And he, this coach, his task was basically to scout the Cavs. They said one of the hardest things about the Cavs last year was they just had so many shooters to have to check in on. The Lakers, though, will counter that. We looked and saw Magic and Rob looked and saw what happened in the playoffs, particularly Houston versus Golden State, and saw that there were multiple ball handlers attacking the Warriors. And they looked at that and said, we're not going to be able to copy the Warriors. We're not going to be able to hang with their firepower. But maybe we can get multiple ball handlers and attack the Warriors and the Rockets and try to defend them as best as we can and get somebody who can maybe agitate them, get them under their skin, like Draymond Green in, say, like Lance Stevenson. And then the other thing is they looked at the Cavs and saw what happened with the Cavs in the finals and saw that LeBron was probably having to do way too much and that basically the rest of the guys were kind of one-dimensional around him and they did not want to get into that. That's why I think you almost had a knee-jerk reaction, kind of like an NFL head NFL team that fires his head coach the year before who was a defensive-minded coach who might not have been a player-friendly coach, and all of a sudden they go hire an offensive-minded coach who's way too player-friendly. It's almost kind of like the Lakers went that direction and went opposite of what the Cavs were doing. So when you look at that group of young guys, uh, which of them do you feel like fits best with LeBron? To me, it's got to be Brandon Ingram. Brandon Ingram has to be the guy that's going to be the number two scorer on this team this year. I think if the Lakers are going to have the success that Magic and Rob hope they have, 
then Brandon Ingram has to approach all-star type numbers in an all-star type season. Uh, last year, he took a pretty big leap. He went from like, I think about nine points per game to 16 points per game. He was particularly very good when they put the ball in his hands and played him at point guard when Lonzo Ball was out for stretch last year. This year, again, one of the issues with this roster that people think is that there's too many multiple ball handlers and only one ball to go around because you have Rondo, LeBron, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Lance Stevenson. How are these guys all going to be able to share one basketball? Uh, Brandon Ingram is going to have to learn to play off the ball. He's going to have to be very good at moving around, getting himself open. And one thing we saw early in the preseason, really right off in the first game, LeBron was looking to get Brandon Ingram involved and find Brandon Ingram. So I think Brandon Ingram game, he's going to be able to run the floor and get a lot of easy buckets that way. And he's going to try and get open. So Rondo and LeBron can find him. And I think that's going to be a good fit. And then Kyle Kuzma is another guy who I think uh, being able to be kind of like a streaky scorer, but also hit threes from the outside and get hot. He's another guy that could potentially see a lot of open shots from LeBron. I mean, all the young guys, if we can go through the list, like Lonzo Ball's game in particular, it, we're, we're going to see tonight in Las Vegas how they're going to play together because this is the first time we'll see them play together. But it's going to be really interesting because Lonzo kind of has that, you know, all-around court feel. He rebounds. He likes to push the ball. I think we could see Le Lonzo get a lot of fast break transition dunks as even like a trailer. Uh, once he pushes the ball up court, let's say he pushes it up to LeBron, then Lonzo follows in. He could get a lot of dunks and fast breaks and transitions, and he's probably going to get a good number of open, wide open, catch-and-shoot three-point shots. He's been working on a shot a little bit. He's gotten stronger, so he doesn't have to bring the ball as, as pronounced over to the left side as he did last season. But we'll still have to see how that's all going to factor in. And then Josh Hart's the other guy who is a 3-and-D guy, but a little bit more than that but a guy that the Lakers really like, and he's going to just basically do everything that's asked of him and play, you know, kind of do all the dirty work as well, which is a guy that's going to fit in well with LeBron. Oh, thanks for doing it. We appreciate it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Miami Heat. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, you are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hopefully we can check on you during the season. All right, thanks, guys. Mark your calendars. On Wednesday, October 17th, Miami Heat Beat is hosting a party that you won't want to miss. Come out and watch the Miami Heat take on the Orlando Magic in their regular season opener, poolside at Duffy's in North Miami. There will be prizes, drink specials, and more. At halftime, you might get the chance to compete in the first-ever Spelling G. Go head-to-head in a spelling contest with Heat Beat host Gianni for your chance to win a free T-shirt. I'd say your chances are pretty good on this one. I'm not so sure he can even spell T-shirt. So come out and meet some of your favorite Heat Beat personalities as well as other members of Five Reasons Sports. That's Wednesday, October 17th, poolside at Duffy's, 3969 Northeast 163rd Street, North Miami Beach. Tip-off is at 7 p.m. You can't beat your chance to meet Heat Beat. Up next, the defending champion, Golden State Warriors. Is Kevin Durant staying or is he going? What of the Golden State Warriors with Mark Medina of Bay Area News Group? This Golden State team is really at this point built for the playoffs. That in terms of depth, in terms of when it is that Cousins is coming back, that maybe they won't be able to sort of put up 65-plus wins like we've gotten accustomed to, but that it's basically built for seven-game series. Do you see them getting bored this year at all, and how do they sustain themselves through the regular season? I can definitely see themselves getting bored because it's already happened um, last year when you know they were coming off of their – Let's see if I get this math right. They had won two NBA championships in the previous three years. Um, so you add that up by another year. But when you talk to the Warriors, one th- the two things that they're trying to guard against that is they feel that the integration process and the rehab process with DeMarcus Cousins and the fact that they're paving much larger roles with some of their young players because some other you know veterans off the bench left, that will help the team stay engaged. It's almost a puzzle for them to solve. And I don't know if this is just a talking point cliche, but it sounds like the Warriors kind of see a psychological component as well. Opening the season, they actually talked as a group. We're talking Warriors general manager Bob Myers, Warriors coach Steve Kerr, and the players. And they emphasize the importance of not talking about how long of a grind it's been this these past few years and how it's a long season and they have to pace themselves and they're always getting everyone's best shot. And it seemed like that was the mantra throughout the year last year. And I think when you talk to people around the team, they felt that that allowed them to kind of have a a built-in excuse. So I think the Warriors are trying to tout the idea of embracing this year because they've had a summer to recharge. They do have some new pieces, some young players that might be able to add some extra juice. And the fact that, you know, the Warriors will be first to admit, they don't know if this is Kevin Durant's 
last year. So if it is his last year, we'll try to make the best of it. Yeah, I wanted to get to that with you next. So obviously there are two pieces going forward. Well, three, actually, if you include Cousins, but we'll get to him in a second. But of two of the core pieces that we don't know if they're going to be long-term warriors. So let's address, you mentioned KD first. Um, I saw Marcus Thompson come out uh, in The Athletic and, and sort of put it out there that he thinks this is going to be it for KD. What is your sense of it? And if he left, why do you think he would leave? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I think Marcus was the, the victim, as I, it's often happened to me, too, of, you know, you're, you're talking general terms and it gets aggregated into a news story. But I, I definitely agree with his thought process where there's a general unknown and the fact that he is keeping his options open when you would think the Warriors have everything that he could ever want in terms of championships and team bonding and business prospects in the Bay Area because of the proximity to all the tech companies in Silicon Valley. Um, If I had a guess, I think he's still going to stay with the Warriors, but I think to Marcus's larger point, it's really a toss-up. Like The Warriors are bracing for the fact that he might not be there. Uh, I think that they still have a hopeful optimism because of all the reasons I outlined. They can from a financial standpoint, pay him more because they have that extra year that they can pay him with a new contract, five years, $219 million. But Kevin Durant is such a unique star, and I don't know if uh, he's ever gotten the same kind of criticism that other players have gotten. And Ethan, as you know, LeBron James got criticism when he went to Miami, for sure, because of all the decision, the decision and what went into it and the optics. But the thing about Kevin Durant that I think makes it a little unique is that when he won an NBA championship, the criticism didn't necessarily dial back. If anything, it only increased where, you know, critics of him, whether it's just Twitter bots or, you know, other NBA players or ex-NBA players, there's this notion that he won a championship with an asterisk. He took the easy way out because he joined a team with a few all-stars. And that's the, the thing that I could see factoring into Kevin wanting to leave and not so much that he wants to be the guy on a new team Uh, I think he's actually fine that he is not the person that's always being dependent on to score and take a lot of shots he likes the fact that he has Steph Curry and Clay Thompson to to help him out with that but maybe just to prove that he hasn't taken the easy way out And, and really no one knows the answer to that not even people around Kevin because it's really hard to gauge what exactly makes him tick. That's always been the interesting distinction for me between uh, KD and LeBron is that, you know, LeBron would get bothered by criticism, but wouldn't let you know he was bothered by criticism. Uh, KD can't seem to hold that in. Like he, he always, he always seems to enunciate it that, you know, about being tired of not being respected or obviously the burner accounts and all that stuff. Whereas with LeBron, I mean, the four years, you know, that he went through in Miami, particularly that first year, second year, um, I mean, he was criticized more than any athlete, you know, pretty much ever at that level. And I had one conversation with him, Mark, you know, in San Antonio, I think it was the second year where it, there was something that Skip Bayless said that day. I can't remember. <laughs> and, and, and so, and, and LeBron came out of the shower and, and, you know, in the locker room in San Antonio and he looked at me and he goes, you know, one of these days, one of these days. And I, I knew exactly what he was talking about. He says, one of these days, I'm just going to go off. And it never really happened. It kind of just became part of his personality where he's so confident in himself now that he'll say, you know, what's on his mind, but it never seems like he's as sensitive 
as Durant is. I, it just seems like a key difference between the two of them. Right. And not to be an armchair psychologist with this, I didn't get a degree in that line of field, but just tying into the question I raise, if it's hard to see what makes him tick and ultimately could it sway his decision to leave, the thing that I'm always wrestling with is these examples of him you know, engaging with fans on social media and burner accounts and maybe being honest when he doesn't like a line of questioning. Is that a reflection of just him being honest and, and saying what maybe others, including LeBron, think privately but just don't want to go through uh, the hassle of expressing themselves openly? Or is it a sign that you know those things get to him more than it might get to any other athlete it's very hard to read and you know as far as how it pertains to the Warriors and free agency that that's kind of the interesting puzzle that they don't even know what it exactly is the other one for whom the long term is not really clear is Clay Thompson and you know there's been a lot of discussion about Jimmy Butler what we're talking about right now obviously Paul George there was a decision uh, that he made this offseason to stay with Oklahoma City I kind of put those three guys in kind of the same general areas like the best wings in the league behind LeBron and Kawhi those three and with Clay now there's some uncertainty so You've gotten to know him a little bit. Um, he's, I guess, I don't know, the third guy, the fourth guy on that team, yeah. depending on the night. Does he have any ambition to be the second guy somewhere else, like he would have been if Durant doesn't show up, to be the first guy maybe on a team like Harden was when he went from Oklahoma City to Houston? I, what do you think is in his mind, and how real is the L.A. possibility? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I'm willing to even put money on this. I don't see him leaving the Warriors. He's He's been emphatic on record multiple times to me and others saying he wants to be a Warrior for life. It's his goal to, to stay here. And, you know, obviously, even when you talk to people around his camp, obviously the, the details, the devil is always in the details. But the sense that I've gotten is um, – on one hand, they're not going to entertain extension talks. Um, he's going to be a free agent, but it's not like he's going to try to squeeze every last penny. He's not consumed with all the normal things that might drive uh, an NBA all-star to a different team. He doesn't care about being the number one, number two player. He doesn't care about getting more shots. He doesn't care about the limelight. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. Like He is a very simple guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's been so forthcoming, you know, ever since last year and this summer and, you know, the first few days of training camp when people have brought up, you know, some of the, the those ideas of how intrigued is he about being a free agent? Was he excited about being pursued? He, he really said, not really. Like, I, I don't really want to be a free agent. I just want to stay here because I know what they have. And then he started pointing to the banners on the wall and said, you know, a lot of reasons why free agents want to leave is to chase those and I'm already here so the only unknown is to what extent he would take a pay cut but the way it's been explained to me is um, it's going to partly hinge on Kevin Durant not necessarily does he want to leave if he if Kevin leaves but it's more of Kevin's going to be the, the first domino that the Warriors handle for obvious reasons and if he resigns with the Warriors, you know, Clay will be next and he'll say, hey, let's make a deal with whatever we need to do to make it work to stay. If Kevin decides to leave, maybe that opens up a conversation that, you know, because he's gone, maybe the Warriors will have some more money to to be willing to give to Clay. But either scenario, 
Clay has, has made it emphatic and so has people around him that, that he wants to stay barring, you know, anything catastrophic. DeMarcus Cousins, what are the expectations for him from the Warriors this year? When are we going to see him, you know, fully integrated, do you think? And, and is there any chance, I, I think I know the answer to this, but is there any chance with the salary structure going forward that this is more than sort of a one-year make-good deal where he puts himself back out on the market? Yeah, I think um, first, as far as the expectations, the Warriors see it as a low-risk, high-reward. And I think that they're the only team that can really think that way because they have four other All-Stars and, you know, they've already won two consecutive championships with those players. So that obviously allowed the Warriors to, to make that risk, which very few other teams were willing to do, let alone give a substantial offer to DeMarcus because of his left Achilles injury. Now, where he stands right now this week, um, you know, he's been making a lot of progress. He's been on the court doing a lot of conditioning drills, some non-contact with some games of two-on-two, three-on-three, even some full court exercises, non-contact, just to get his conditioning up to speed. But Steve Kerr didn't know how imminent it's going to be once he can actually do full court contact. And I know just dating back to my time covering the Lakers with Kobe Bryant's Achilles injury, it's a really sensitive injury. Now with Kobe's instance, he was, you know, I think 34 years at the toll at the time. He had a lot more mileage than DeMarcus Cousins, who's 28. But the, the typical timeline for an Achilles injury can be anywhere between eight to 12 months. And DeMarcus heard it in January. So, I want to entirely rule out the scenario that maybe he comes back before the end of the calendar year, but the Warriors aren't trying to rush that back. Um, the, the end game is not necessarily just save them for the playoffs, but enough of an integration time where they can you know, get him used to the starting lineup and also having a little bit of a staggered role with the bench unit. But you know, they don't need a whole half of a regular season to do that. And any worst case scenarios of a he's not the same kind of player he was he's not as productive his rehab goes you know not as anticipated and maybe he sours on the whole idea of what he signed up for of having a diminished role for the sake of winning a championship they can they can really just look at last year and say hey we won with four all-stars we don't need you but uh you know the warriors always see that that kind of strength in numbers uh, combination, but the, to answer the, the the question of what this means long term, I mean, I would be very surprised if he comes back after this season, just because I, I think Demarcus's expectation, the market, the market itself, he's going to be worth certainly more than five point three million dollars, assuming that he comes back and he doesn't have another major injury. So I think that that's what he's looking at now. Maybe there's a scenario where, say, Kevin Durant leaves and there's some money to, to work with where they say, hey, well, we lost Kevin Durant, but we will make it work to keep four all-stars. I could certainly see that, but I would pin the handicap on this is likely a one-year rental for DeMarcus. All right, you can follow him at Mark G underscore Medina. So definitely follow him there, covering the Warriors, doing a great job for the Bay Area Sports Group. All right, thanks for having me. Honored to be on. 
Hey, Juice, so October is here, and in my mind, that means only one thing. It is almost time for my favorite event of the year, and no big surprise, but it's an O.J. McDuffie party. Yeah, you know it, Big Seth. The 17th Annual Signature Grand Ghoul presented by Calvin Giordano and Associates will take place on Monday, October 29th, and once again benefits 211 Broward, an amazing charity. We are transforming the Signature Grand into a 100,000-square-foot mansion for the sickest Halloween costume party in South Florida. And this costume party is for the grown folk, Big not people. the kids, mm-hmm. yeah. We're talking open bar, amazing food, dancing, silent auction, and of course, contests and prizes for the most incredible costumes. And since the fish tank will be all up in the ghoul, as will a bunch of other hosts from our Five Reasons Sports family, let's do a little something special for the listeners. So what we need you to do is post a photo in your all-time greatest Halloween costume, tag your favorite Five Reasons Sports podcast, and use the hashtag DiveIntoTheGhoul. And the top four costumes will have a chance to win two tickets to the Signature Grand Ghoul on that October 29th. For more information on how you can join OJ and me at the Signature Grand Ghoul, visit 211-Broward.org and call 954-390-0493 and ask for Tracy. And the last of our five most interesting teams in the NBA, they're the Houston Rockets. They're the team that has come closest to knocking off the Kevin Durant-led Golden State Warriors. We're covering them with Stefano Fusaro of ESPN. Let's go ahead and run through the offseason, just in terms of in and out. A big trade that allows them to get off the Ryan Anderson salary. They send Trevor Reza. Uh, well, they didn't send him, but they he eventually signed with Phoenix as well. But Ryan Anderson, Trevor Reza in Phoenix. Marquise Chris and Brandon Knight come back. They also had Carmelo Anthony. They had Michael Carter-Williams. They had James Ennis. In general, do you think plus minus in the end, they're still as close to Golden State as they were a year ago. I think that really needs to be proven. Inside that organization, they're gonna, they're saying all the right things as far as they don't feel that their defensive drop-off will be uh, as heavy as maybe some are predicting, you know, with the departure of Trevor Ariza and Luke Bamute specifically. This is going to shock Heat fans a little bit, I think. They are putting a lot on James Ennis, and that's basically one of the reasons that they're kind of saying, okay, defensively, we don't feel the drop-off is going to be that much. Now, look, I know what we've seen from James Ennis, and it's only preseason, but he's been starting in some of these games at the three, and he doesn't seem to have to worry at all about offense on this team. And that's one thing where I could say, okay, maybe he could have some success playing on this team in that role. But they are really high on him right now. And again, I know Heat fans will be like, really, James Ennis? That's who they're high on? That's who they're kind of depending on to replace Trevor Reese's defense? Don't really know if that's going to pan out in the long run. But as of right now, I'd say that I need to see it during the regular season to believe that they are truly as good of a team as they were last year on both ends of the floor. Now, he's a good defender, I think. I mean, when you look at some of the metrics on him, yeah. they are they have been good the past couple of years in particular. He's not a very good dribbler. We know that. I mean, obviously, if he doesn't yeah. have to – you don't have to count on him for offense, that's fine. I, I guess – you know, my bigger question about losing Ariza is some of it is defense, yes, but some of it is also spacing because he, he provided a lot of that. And obviously we know that the way that they like to play, that it's all threes and, and dunks, basically. Like they don't do much yeah. uh, in mid-range. It's not the way Daryl likes to play. It's not the way that, that D'Antoni likes to play. Um, so I, I guess when I, when I look at them overall offensively, do you think they'll be much the same that they were, and, and I guess the other the question that plays into this is they just added one of the highest isolation players in NBA history 
to their group who has operated almost solely in the mid-range until the past couple of years when his three-point attempts went up. So adding Carmelo to this mix, how does it change the offense? There's definitely going to have – he's going to have some isolation opportunities just because of the way that this offense goes and the way that D'Antoni is going to – moving his rotations. Carmelo is going to come off the bench, and, and we know how much of an issue that was for him last year with OKC. I had Royce Young on the on my podcast recently, and he was telling me that, yeah, he did not buy into that at all in OKC. He kind of had a different idea as to, as to what that big three was going to be. As far as their offense is concerned, he's going to get some isolation opportunities, but so far, and again, it's preseason, so – it's a small sample size, but you're seeing him not having to move a whole lot, which makes him happy. We know that he doesn't have to move a whole lot on offense to find his spot. And I think the biggest difference from last year with OKC, Westbrook and Paul George are not as willing of passers as Chris Paul and James Harden have been. And so far in the preseason, they have found him in his spots and he's had success shooting the ball from three. And also every once in a while, that mid range, I don't know if you guys saw, but uh, in the second preseason game, he pumped fake the three-pointer, stepped inside the line, and took a long two and made it, and still had to turn and apologize to his teammates and to the bench. Everyone's <laughs> cracking up because, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to take a long two, guys. I know how much you're, you know, you're you're against that. The Antoni was actually cracking up and, and pointing at him on the sideline. So it was a big joke. But uh, he will be getting, he will get a lot of opportunities, and it won't be as much isolation as he may have done in the past, just because of the way the offense goes but he will get those opportunities in this offense as well. But just in terms of if Carmelo Anthony was not best friends with Chris Paul, do you think that the Rockets sort of in a world in a, in a world which they operated in a vacuum would really have gone from obviously you get him super cheap and and that helps kind of soften the blow and maybe if you have to get rid of him it won't be that expensive, but do you think that he would ideally fit in with this team and do you think that he's really wanted there or is just sort of a token of appreciation of Chris Paul for coming? Looking at it over the top, it, it, it can kind of seem that way, but Again, it's a, it's a small sample size, but Carmelo Anthony has seemed to be buying in so far to the way that they are doing business. Is part of that Chris Paul kind of being the alpha dog in that locker room and telling him this is how we play and this is how it's got to be if you want to be here? Yeah, absolutely. It kind of reminds me a little bit about when, uh, when LeBron came to Miami. Dwayne Wade was the alpha. He had to learn how to win with Dwayne Wade on that roster, and they figured things out. I'm not saying it's going to be half that success. Obviously, we're talking about Carmelo Anthony in year 16, but he does seem to have bought in so far to what they're trying to do on offense, knowing that that role is going to, it's not going to have the same role he's had his whole career, but it does seem like, okay, he's bought in. And if, if he's buying in this way, I don't see a reason why the Rockets wouldn't have brought him here, even if he wasn't best friends with Chris Paul. See, my thing on him is he's been a net negative player for the last four years. I mean, Chris is tired of hearing my Carmelo takes, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. essentially, essentially he's late. He's late career Alex English, uh, who's gotten a lot more notoriety than Alex English. <laughs> yeah, and, and, that makes and, sense. And, and who makes a lot more demands than Alex English. But taking a look at the backcourt, now we just had Bobby Marks on our pod, and he talked about how good Chris Paul looks right now. Now, I, when that contract was signed, Signed, we both panned it here on the pod because, I mean, Chris Paul has been injury prone. His body may break down more over the next few years, and you're going to be paying him an ungodly amount of money going forward. So how do they manage this situation with him? Do they plan on trying to play him 82 games during the season? Not that that ever happens, but are they going to try to do that? Or is this going to be nursing him until the playoffs because they need him for a seven-game series against the Warriors? I've had several conversations with people inside the organization just about this. And, yeah, they're going to try to limit his minutes early on in the season, probably throughout January, February. Now, is it easy to tell Chris Paul, hey, you got to come off the floor after only playing 28 minutes in a game? Yeah, it's extremely difficult because he's the guy who's going to absolutely rip you 
for taking him out of the game, and he doesn't feel bad about it either. He does look great. He's looked fast. He's looked healthy. He clearly comes into the season with a chip on his shoulder after the way everything ended last year. It was really tough for him. He went into a little depression after that series and knowing how close he was. If he doesn't pull that hamstring, doesn't do that hamstring, you know, they very well could be, in, they could have been in the finals and they could have won a championship. I think it's pretty evident that was, uh, was on the table had he stayed healthy. They are going to try to limit his minutes. And uh, I just don't know how much success they're going to have when you got a guy like that telling you, you know, I don't want to come out of a game. How close do you think they were? And I, I've asked you this before, but as we kind of get further and further away from it, with that Game 7 being just a complete and utter apocalypse in terms of shooting, like, do you think yep. that, you know, making five out of 31 threes, they go and beat the Warriors? Or do you think that the Warriors are kind of always going to figure them out? Because we've seen the Warriors against the ropes before, and they seem to have fought back except for that notable one time that they didn't. But it really felt like Houston had them, and I just kind of wonder if losing what they've lost and all of that, how close do you think they were to begin with? And now as we enter this season, how close are they now? Look, as how close they were to begin with, especially last season. Look, there was a point I picked the Warriors to win that series before it started. And I'd say when we were over in Oakland in about, it was game three or four, I can't remember now, but I started to see it wasn't the offense. It wasn't the Rockets offense that was beating the Warriors in those games. It was their defense. And, and that's kind of what I think a lot of the, national media doesn't really follow it there was a top five defensive team last year and I think that's where some of the biggest questions come as far as this season they're going to say the right things and they're talking about wanting to continue this defensive identity they're, they don't feel the drop-off is going to happen I need to see that on the floor because their defense is what was having was keeping them in those games and winning those games for them against the Warriors in that playoff series and I just don't know if their defensive effort is going to be the same moving forward without Trevor Ariza, without Luke Bamute and that experience in that lineup. Stefano Fusaro, check him out on Twitter, at Fusaro ESPN. will be covering the team throughout the season. Check it out on SportsCenter and the various ESPN platforms. Appreciate the time. Of course, man. Take care. And finally, to close us out is Nikias Duncan, who's part of our crew over at Miami Heat Beat. Check them out at heatbeatmiami.com at MIA Heatbeat on Twitter, where Nikias is tweeting a lot from during Heat games. This is brilliant insight. Nikias Duncan on the Miami Heat. All right, now we're going to get to the last part of our NBA preview. We've covered five teams from around the NBA, and I know a lot of you have just fast-forwarded to this. So if you're joining us now, I'm Ethan Skolnick. I'm here with Chris Whittingham. And we're going to be joined now by Nikias Duncan. You can find him at Nikias NBA. You can also find him on heatbeatmiami.com. If you're not aware, we're expanding our Heat and NBA coverage quite a bit this year. Obviously, we've got 6,000 people on the Heat Beat podcast. <laughs> uh, Chris and I do a ton of Heat on our pod. I would say probably 50% of what we do. If I can drag Chris along, it's closer to 60% of what we do here on the podcast is Heat. Also, Cinco Rizonis will be covering the Heat, their credential with the Heat also. So catch up with them. They do a little bit of Spanish and English. They had uh, George Sedano on last week, and they're going to have Jose. Can you please do this for me, Chris? Jose Pineda. Pineda. There you go. On their <laughs> pod here in the next week or so. So they're going to do quite a bit of heat. And then you also catch some heat on Balls Cast and on Light Skinned Opinions. But we know that this is what you're here for, so we're going to cover the heat here in the next few minutes with Nikias. And, and let's start here as we're taping this on a Monday night. Jimmy Butler is still a Minnesota Timberwolf. He's an angry Timberwolf, um, <laughs> but he's still he's still a Timberwolf. And so we're addressing this as if he's going to remain a Timberwolf at least for the indefinite future and address the Heat roster. So when training camp started, Nikias and I did a pod about what the players looked like going to training camp. 
Then we did another one after preseason that you can catch on our patron feed. And now we're at the end of preseason. The season is ready to start. And I'll start with you here. What does Eric Spolstra do with this roster? Well, it looks like he's just going to have to play everyone because there have been basically no moves to try to clear up the roster at all. I think he's going to have to roll with what he has, which is a lot of solid rotation pieces and a couple of uh, all-star caliber talents in Goran Dragic and Hassan Whiteside, who has looked great during the preseason. You know, you have to take preseason play with a grain of salt, but Hassan looks healthy. Um, looks like he's added a little bit to his game. He's definitely more looks more athletic than he has in the last couple of years. So it's just going to be a matter of continuity and internal improvement, it looks like. Let's look at the three young players, all of whom are, are still on the roster right now, all of whom, you know, I had heard that the Heat really didn't want to move. Um, there was one that they were more likely to move in Justice Winslow than the other two, just the obligatory justice better for our Heat Beat crowd. <laughs> uh, but now he has his extension, three years, $39 million. Third year is a team option, which made me feel a little bit better about it. Uh, right now, the Heat have – this stat is amazing to me. The Heat have eight players on their roster who are averaging $10 million a season now that they've added justice. Just for some perspective on this, the other contenders in the Eastern Conference, none of them have more than four. The Rockets have five. The Warriors have five. The Heat have eight. So you talked about trying to clean out the roster. That's a place they need to clean out the roster somehow, and obviously weren't able to get it done this offseason. But the three guys that are still on the roster right now, what are the ceilings for all three of these guys? Bam Adebayo, uh, Justice Winslow, and Josh Richardson. Um, I would say starting with Justice, I didn't mind the extension. Um, the years per are a little high, but that's obviously more of an upside play. And the fact that they got the team option at the end of that, as you said, makes it a little bit better for the Heat side. They can clear cap space that way if they feel like they have a shot at a big free agent in three years. Um, as far as his on-court ceiling, um, I think you're still looking at a guy like Iggy in the, base, in the best case scenario, a guy that can facilitate the offense, a guy that can knock down corner threes if you space them, um, a creator in pick and roll, and a guy that can defend three, four positions at a high level. There's no telling what Bam Adebayo's ceiling is yet. It looks like he got more of a green light in preseason, got the push off of defensive rebounds more. He's obviously one of, if not Miami's most versatile defender already, which is high praise considering Josh Richardson, Justice Winslow, James Johnson went healthy all on the roster. They can all defend multiple positions. Um, I'm very excited about Bam and Josh Richardson, the way that he was able to create for himself in a limited sampling preseason, he looks like he's added another dimension to his game. Um, he started creating a little bit more, did a better job of knocking down pull-up jumpers, left-handed layups last year. It looks like he's more willing to take pull-up threes, and I think that's going to raise the ceiling a bit, bit. The defense is already there, so if he can add that level to, of scoring to his game, become more of a three-level scorer, I could see a surprise all-star burst from him. I think Bam is probably the guy that – has, like you said, the most unknown just by virtue of the fact that he has, in theory, all of this skill set. Can you sort of highlight – I was at the, the, the Wednesday night preseason game against New Orleans, and he was really allowed to do a lot more than he normally would because so many guys weren't playing. What are all the different things that Bam Adebayo does from your perspective? He can handle the ball, and I think that off-rip separates him from 95% of the bigs in the NBA. He has a really fluid handle for a guy his size. He can get to the rack whenever he wants to. It's just a matter of being more aggressive or at least being given the green light to be more aggressive. It looks like Miami's going to give him that. Can handle the ball as a great screener, can play above the rim, great offensive rebounder. Defensively, he can switch out on guards. He is a solid post defender. He still needs to get a little bit stronger. I worry about him against bigger centers, your Steven Adams, your Andre Drummonds, 
even though he isn't a post threat, he's just a bully down low. Um, but that's kind of what Miami like. He's a jack of all trades at center, and being able to do that many things at center kind of opens up your offense and your defense in a lot of different ways. All right, let's look at some of the veteran guys on the roster. We're going to get to Dwayne last because um, I know both of you are dying to weigh in on that one. So uh, I'm going to oh, delay. Let's do it. I'm, I'm going to delay that as long as possible. But let's look at some of the other veterans on the roster. Uh, first, uh, you know, the couple that have decent contracts. Dragic and Olinick. You documented in some of your work on HeatBeatMiami.com that Goran was less efficient in certain areas last year. We actually asked Goran about that. I recommend people check that pot out. We did interviews with Goran, uh, also with uh, Udonis Haslam and, and Josh Richardson. And Dragic, you know, talked a little bit about finishing more with his other hand, but he said that he thinks his numbers will come back just because he feels fresher this year. That he wore down last season, uh, second half of the year and just sort of taking the whole summer off. Now, I feel like with Dragic, every year it's different about what he feels worked during the summer. There was one summer he didn't do anything at all, and then the next, and he said he had to do more the next summer, and then he went with the national team the whole summer, and then you know he said, I need to rest the next summer. So I feel like it changes every year. But do you think that Goran is on a slippery slope down at this point, or do you think he can regain you know, some of the stuff he was doing early last season and before that? This might be a little bit of hedging, but I think it's a little bit of both. I do think just by virtue of him getting older, he's going to lose a little bit of athleticism. You saw the foot speed slow down a little bit last year, and that hurt him more defensively than offensively. Um, His first few years in Miami, he was a – I would slot him as like a fine defender, a guy that could execute the scheme. He would fight over screens, stay connected to the guards, and pick and roll. Wasn't really a block threat because, of course not. Um, Wasn't a guy that played the passing lanes great but could do it in a decent manner. But he executed the scheme. He gave you everything you needed him to do. Um, last year, he was constantly burned by speedy point guards. Ish Smith gave him the blues in their Pistons matchups. So you can imagine what elite point guards did to him. And it got to the point where Eric Spolster finally started consistently hiding him on weaker defenders and giving Josh Richardson those assignments. So I think I don't think that comes back. But I do think he could be more efficient this year. As you said, he's fresher. And one thing I did notice during the preseason play is that they had Goran finishing a lot of plays, but they didn't have him – kicking offsets I think working him off ball against an already bent defense will work wonders for him because he can still abuse defenses when they're bent, when they're already bent another veteran player uh that is entering his fifth season in the league and fifth season with Miami which uh, it seems like it's been less than that is Tyler Johnson and uh he obviously comes up on heat beat all the time but is someone that I feel like we know who he is he is about 11 and a half points a game off the bench scorer that can you know make about 36 percent of his threes 36 37 is where he's been is there any room for growth I mean his numbers like last two years almost look exactly the same down to percentages down to averages is there any growth there or are Heat fans just going to be looking at a 19 million dollar role player and feeling like for the next two years why is this guy making 19 million dollars um I think it's going to be the latter just because I don't the only thing that Tyler Johnson could really the only thing that really improves him stock is if he gets longer because that's really what holds him back on both ends it's never been an effort thing and at this point I don't even think it's a skill thing He's just small. Um, it's gonna. It's really going to boil down to improving in the margins, and I think he did that a lot last year. He became a better ball handler, became a much more consistent passer, started threading pocket passes and pick and roll more consistently than he ever has. Um, he looks like he's improved a little bit there as well, even though he did have a rough shooting preseason. So that combined with the contract had Heat fans a lot pretty heated. Um, but I do think that he played pretty well outside of the shooting, which is a big deal. But 
I'm not too concerned about him. I think that comes with him establishing a rhythm. I think he's going to be fine, but I don't think he's going to live up to that contract. Yeah, I don't know that anybody can live up to that contract. Let, let's get to two guys that, that I think they will get pretty decent value out of. I mentioned one of them earlier, uh, Olenek, and when we had Wayne Ellington on the pod, he, he basically said Kelly's the second best shooter on the roster or the only one who might challenge him a little bit in a shooting contest. Is there more growth? Because Well, let's start with Ellington. Is there more growth potentially to his game at all? Because one of the frustrating things about the Philadelphia series was it, it did seem like the Sixers kind of schemed him off the floor because he couldn't fight through the screens defensively. And then in Kelly's case, I, I know the numbers were really good with him on the floor last year in a lot of combinations, particularly with Bam. Do you expect more of a role, or is that limited by the fact that they're you know, trying to get this white side renaissance and they want to get Bam on the floor as much as possible? Um, I don't expect much movement from Kelly's role. Um, I think he's going to see a lot more for this year, and he did struggle at times, particularly in the Washington game. Marquis Morris burned him a lot on the perimeter and is trying to track him. But as you said, Kelly Olenek was an effective player last year. He was a little bit better defensively than I thought he was, even with the foot speed issues. The passing was there. The shooting was there. If I had one complaint about Kelly O'Lennon last year, it was his aggressiveness. He passed up a lot of shots to kind of keep the offense flowing instead of looking for his own. And I think his scoring and his shooting could really help his offense a good bit. So hopefully, even if he doesn't play more, hopefully he does a little bit more, at least tries to look for his own shot a little bit more. But I, I'm not sure. They're going to have to balance those minutes out to get him Bam and Hassan enough minutes. God, they got so many bodies. I mean, I, we're going through the list here, and I'm like, <laughs> man, these are all potential rotation players. I don't know how the heck uh, Spoke <laughs> figures it out. I mean, I'm not going to dwell on James Johnson long. I think you and I have, have covered him, uh, you know, before on previous podcasts, and I, a lot of it is I don't, just... I don't, I don't mean for it to sound so harsh, but, like, do you almost not wish for injuries, but wish for things to happen that allow the, the decisions to make themselves? Like, I guess... Yeah, when when you are at full strength, like who gets sacrificed? Well, and that's the thing we're talking about with JJ is, I mean, he wasn't available during the preseason, and now, okay, where is his role? And we haven't even talked about the guy who was probably their most impressive player in preseason, Nikias, which was Rodney Magruder. And and so right, I mean, it, it wouldn't stun me if Rodney is honestly the starting two for this team. Like I, I think that's a genuine possibility I, before we get to the one part that i know you both want to touch on uh i, what, I mean what what is nikaias right now what is the starting lineup uh, if you were just to guess what starts on wednesday uh, we have our watch party at duffy's north miami beach which we we welcome everybody uh to come to we're gonna we're gonna be there all night but and and we may throw giancarlo novice in the pool because <laughs> uh dur during the the spelling g we're having at halftime but uh, what is the starting lineup? Hassan is starting, Dragic is starting, uh, Josh is starting somewhere. What are the other two pieces? I would imagine that they at least try Goran, J. Ridge, Justice, Kelly, and Hassan. That was a lot of, they saw a lot of burn in the preseason. And that's a way to get Kelly some minutes early on. You get the chance to look at Josh Richardson and Justice Winslow together and you get to throw basically your two best perimeter defenders out there. And that would help with Goran Dragic. He's kind of slipped last year defensively. You have a chance to hide him defensively. I think that's their best way to get their, if not their best players on the court at the same time, at least their most important guys. A nice mix of their best players and their most important guys moving forward. Who's taking DNP coaches' decisions under Coach Nikias Duncan on this team? <sighs> You're going to make people cut off the, the podcast, man. <laughs> I, 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 oh, no. Oh, um, no. 
No, um, <laughs> in all seriousness, I do think, even though Rodney has definitely earned a spot, I still feel like Rodney's going to end up being an odd man out at some point. Derrick Jones Jr. isn't going to crack the rotation, even though he did have some encouraging flashes during preseason. There there are so many guys <laughs> that can play for this team. It's ridiculous. But off the top of my head, I think Rodney and Derrick are going to be those break glass in case of emergency guys early on. All right, let's get to it. Um, let's get to it. Uh, I mean, none of these other players matter this season, uh, in my view, in any significant way, other than the development of Bam, Justice, and Josh and what they become for the Heat or what they become elsewhere. I mean, because basically this has been framed as a Dwayne Wade farewell tour. Like, that's the idea that I've gotten since he re-signed. We've talked about this salary cap situation, and it, it's I mean, Hoops Hype put out their salary pie today, and it's just it's just disgusting. I mean, it's it's like, I mean, and you, I, you look- I don't know if it's them or another site that still includes like Chris Bosh's money, like, <laughs> and obviously that doesn't count against the cap. But good no, lord, man, good well, lord. It, I mean, you. I mean, I pulled this. You know, if if you took their top three, and I know Nikaias, you disagreed with the results on this, but if you took their their top three highest paid players, which are Hassan, Tyler, and Goran. Okay, I, I mean, I can't believe that. <laughs> but, but, and, and again, Goran's on a good contract. But like, those are their top three, and their bottom three are Magruder, Derek Jones, and the guy we're going to talk about next, Dwayne Wade. Seventy-three percent of more than fifteen hundred votes that I got said that the bottom three had outplayed the top three in preseason. Now, I don't know if I agree with that because I thought Hassan had a very good preseason, but I think that's kind of a Tyler waiting because he didn't and because Magruder did. But the fact that we can even entertain that conversation when the top three guys make 60 plus million dollars and the bottom three guys make less than five. And we're actually arguing whether the bottom three outplayed the top three. Um, But again, one of those bottom three, I mean, that's what this season is, has become about is Dwayne Wade. And, you know, I, I, so I guess the question for both of you, because I know both of you have sort of emerged as the skeptics of the network on this, but Chris, you haven't had an issue with them bringing Dwayne back because they needed to do something. And and Nikias, from a basketball perspective, I mean, where where does he fit? Because Waiters is not available, so clearly there's a role there. Yeah, I think he's going to be that backup point guard that I've kind of been banging the drum for Justice to be. And for what it's worth, Dwayne can still create out of pick and roll and create looks for other guys. It's just the rest of his game that has kind of tailed off with age, so it's understandable. But that that's just kind of where it is. Once you once you add in the fact that it is his last year, he is by far the most important player in Miami Heat history. I mean, he's guaranteed a role regardless of what the the basketball sense is. Yeah, for me, the the only basketball thing that I concern myself about with Dwayne. Uh, and again, if we're talking about a broader significance, who cares? But uh, my only concern is that. When he's on the floor, it seems like the, his Heat teammates don't seem to have the cachet or whatever status it takes to say, uh, no, no, Dwayne, I'll take control of this possession. I'll, I'll handle the ball. I'll facilitate things. I'll, I'll look for my own shot. You go stand over there. Like, and no one has that reputation yet or that credibility to go and do that to Dwayne Wade. And that's why Dwayne Wade playing for the 29 other teams makes more sense than him playing for this one for that reason because – 
him wearing that uniform in that building with that coach, like that's how it's going to go. And so when Josh Richardson is on the floor with him, can he wrestle that role away from him? And if Dwayne Wade's not there, then he doesn't have to do any wrestling. He's probably stepping into that role this year. That's my only concern. But uh, from the broader significance thing, I, I think it's been totally genius. And uh, we were we were arguing about this last night, but like he comes in, it feels great. It's a comeback and there's a retirement season. Like it's kind of everything you wanted out of an ending. You just forget about 18 months where he was somewhere else. Like, okay, whatever, you move on from it. But, like, the fact that you're paying him nothing, which, again, well, well done to Pat Riley because he might have been paying $20 million for this season, if well, not for how he's handled that, the last few years. Instead he gave that to Tyler, but that's Right, right. I mean, we well, can – I'm, I'm just saying, independently, you you could have been paying $20 million. You're getting all the same things for two and a half. That's good business. Regardless of what you do with the other 17 and a half million, that's good business. And I, I think the, the business that they're going to do this year is frankly going to, like you said, distract from what will probably end up being a seven seed, six seed season where you get in the playoffs, you probably get out in the first round. And it looks exactly the same. And it, it, it comes with this presentation that makes it much more palatable for the fans going into going to the arena. And they have either this year to figure out a Jimmy Butler trade or an offseason to figure out what they're going to do to retool and figure this thing out so that when Dwayne's gone next year, you have an attraction to the arena. And I feel like it's real and legitimate cover for this Heat team this season to basically kind of be the same that they were last year. So let's get to it, Nikias. Um, what is this Heat team this year? Uh, you know, I put the them in, I put the East into tiers, mm-hmm. and and I have. Uh, tell me if any of these are wrong in your view. But I, I have Boston, Toronto, and Philly in the first tier. I've got Milwaukee, Washington, Miami, Indiana. This is no particular order mm-hmm. uh, in the second tier. Then I've got kind of a group that could be decent if they're trying. You know, you've got Detroit with Blake. You've got Chicago, depending on Markkinen's health and whether Jabari loses some weight. Um, you know, kind of, kind of in that mix there. Uh, you know, in the middle. Um, and then there's a mix at the bottom. You know, there's your Atlantas, your Orlandos, your Knicks uh, that aren't really sort of trying. So I, I have the Heat in that second group. Where do you think they fall in that second group? Because it's hard for me to see them getting into the first three, and it's hard for me to see them falling out of the playoffs entirely. Um, I think that grouping is fair. Um, just as a quick aside, I would kind of have Boston and Toronto by themselves, Philly in a separate tier, and then go with those other teams. But in general, I do think Miami is, one, is in that tier where they're pretty comfortably a playoff team, but it's going to boil down to who they match up with in the first round, if it's going to be a four-game series or a seven-game series. To me, if you're, if you're tearing these things out, uh, it would be – I would I would say that Philly is in that group with with Toronto and Boston just because of the internal improvement that I mean Ben Simmons was a rookie last year Joel Embiid you know is probably his first real season where they're actually trying to be competitive I think there's certainly room to grow there I would say that Indiana and Milwaukee are in a group above Miami where I I, I don't think that they're in that pack I think what Indiana did in the postseason what Oladipo did last year I would say they're in a group above Miami just because of how competitive they were in that postseason like there's a world to me in which they beat Cleveland eventual finalists in round one like that puts you in a group above Miami because Miami would not have done that Uh, Milwaukee I think with a new coach with continued improvement from Giannis I think they make a step up. They, Milwaukee and Miami had the same record last year. I don't think that'll be the case again. I'd say Miami is kind of in its own group with Washington right now. Uh, I think Cleveland, Detroit, Charlotte 
And I'd say that's it. Like, I'd say that's kind of that next group fighting for the final playoff places. And then the net, the Nets are incentivized to tank this year because they finally have their first-round pick. Uh, right. Chicago should probably be bad. The Knicks are not going to have Porzingis, and they should be bad too. Orlando and Atlanta. Atlanta's definitely going to be bad. They're, like, going to be obnoxiously bad. And Orlando, I mean, they might try, but they won't succeed. So I would say Miami's kind of in a group to me with Washington – as either the sixth or the seventh best team in the conference. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I went. I didn't mention Cleveland earlier, but yeah, I think Cleveland yeah. and Charlotte. I, you know, Cleveland's now. You know, as we're talking now, they just gave Nance some money too. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they've clearly decided to try to, I don't know, sort of heat this thing up where they're, <laughs> they've got a bunch of guys on double-digit contracts now um, around Kevin Love. So we'll see how that works. But yeah, I mean, I I see what you're saying, Chris, um, and I understand. I, I do expect improvement for Milwaukee just because I think the coaching will be better. Um, So I I think that's going to be a major uh, edge for them. I don't think losing Jabari is a big deal for them ultimately. Um, And I do think what we've seen from Giannis is another level. Uh, But I also say this, uh, you know, to me, the the one thing that's that, that the heat have is Spolstra in this case. And if they do get internal improvement, I could see them getting in the mix for four or five, but I think that's about as far as it goes. Um, just quick answer on this one, guys, before we close. And, and thanks to everybody for listening uh, to the pod and getting all the way to the end here. But if the Heat got Jimmy Butler giving up Josh Richardson and other pieces, Nikias, in a couple of words here, uh, what is the highest they could get in the East? I would say they could get up to four. I agree. Yeah, I, I, I agree it's four. I would say, based on my previous you know classifications, they're there with Indiana and Milwaukee as the fourth, fifth, sixth best teams in the conference. And I'd say... Just by well, Milwaukee is Giannis, so it's it's possible that they might end up as five, just because I think Milwaukee can improve that much. Just I, I, to me, they're a sleeping giant in this conference, and every year we talk them up, and every year they disappoint. Like Giannis is. Is, is he the best player in the conference? Because like, yes. we don't know that. Well, Kawhi. Well, we, uh, yeah, like we don't know what Kawhi is yet. I'd say Giannis is the best player in the conference with Embiid and Simmons looking behind him and obviously Hayward and Kyrie in that conversation as well. But like if Miami trades for Jimmy Butler and Milwaukee's a decently functioning organization with Giannis Antetokounmpo and Mike Budenholzer, like I would say they're about equal. So I would say uh, Miami can get as high as four, but they're probably five with Jimmy Butler. All right. Check out Nikias's work at Nikias NBA. Thanks to everybody else who joined us on the pod. We will have coverage of the heat throughout the season. We're actually going to have uh, Brian Goins, the uh, co-founder of Miami heat beat at the heat opener in Orlando. And of course, Check out our watch party. We're going to be at Duffy's North Miami Beach starting about 6.30 on Wednesday night. And we'll have a spelling contest with Novice at halftime. We'll be giving away some hats, some shirts, and all kinds of other cool stuff. And it's two-for-one drinks all night long. Mm-hmm.